It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later on our show, two of the members of the band Coloring 12 give us a hint of what we can hear when the full band performs as part of the Weekend Stars series at the Lower Ramble on Friday. Jazz from the Furman Garner Performance Studio in our second half hour today. First, further understanding maternal mortality. As of the most recent CDC and Department of Health data, Arkansas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. As a part of the Maternal Mortality Series with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Dr. Joe Thompson, the CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI, we focus on the deadliest time frame for mothers, the postpartum period. For families that have experienced a loss due to maternal mortality, this is, you know, this is a tragic event. About half of our maternal deaths happen during pregnancy, and about half happen after pregnancy. So this is in the period where mother's gone home in those first 42 days of life. Frequently, this is associated with an underlying comorbidity, frequently a, a cardiomyopathy or a cardiovascular condition that wasn't recognized. The pregnancy has stressed the mom's uh, um, uh, physiology, and then through delivery, that was a stressful event. And the mom goes home with an unrecognized condition that unfortunately continues to worsen to a point that, that it takes her life. It's a rare event, but it does happen. And I think this is where we are trying to increase physicians' awareness and awareness of some of the signs and symptoms uh, that we need to watch out for uh, for moms in that, that early period after she's gone home with the new baby. I asked Dr. Thompson about recommendations that exist to prevent those deaths for moms whenever they come home. I think the evidence is pretty thin here because it's such a rare condition. So I think one of my recommendations to a new mom or a new family, if things don't seem right, please seek out care. And even if your first effort to get that care, if it doesn't seem right, be persistent. We have a number of anecdotal stories, uh, uh, Serena Williams, others, where it just didn't feel right. And, and, and because of their position, they continued to, to seek care. Because it's such a rare event, most states, including ours, have a maternal mortality review that gets you know, doctors, public health officials, pathologists together to look at a death after it happens um, following a birth. And the most common causes of death are cardiomyopathy or an issue with the heart, a cardiovascular condition like a stroke or an embolus, a hemorrhage, or hypertension during pregnancy. Occasionally, you do have infections from the delivery itself that manifest and can be a threat, but these are the most common causes that have been found after the fact, and that's why we need to look for symptoms associated with those if women are having anything like shortness of breath, heart issues, uh, signs of infection, fever, and other things. They need to seek care after they go home following their delivery. Something else Dr. Thompson mentioned was more tracking among these cases. From the Legislative Maternal Mortality Review Committee report from last year, one in seven cases were missing at least some records crucial to case review. The most comprehensive data, like Dr. Thompson mentioned, was from this legislative committee. Co-reporter Jack Travis and I tracked someone down from the committee to give insight on the health crisis. Dr. Nirvana Manning is a chairman for the Women's Health and Obstetrics Department at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences. She also serves on the Legislative Review Committee. So we have we are now in our second cycle of the maternal mortality, and we look at every maternal death, and that is from birth of their child to 360. So it could be a motor vehicle accident that occurs at 364 days, um, which then those we kind of take out of the bucket. It could be um, an accidental overdose at 120 days. It could be a hospital situation where the mom had a postpartum hemorrhage. And so what we're able to do when we break this down, is this something that that we could have affected? Um, and, you know, preventable in our last two and a half years of data was 91%. And so I think it's a very impressive statistic when you look at that, that we deemed 91 of those preventable in some way, shape, or form. Now, I think when physicians or healthcare providers sometimes hear that, they are daunted. They're like, "What? we didn't mess up that much. Like, how could we have messed up that much? And I think it, it it's taking it so far outside of that. When you break down those deaths, 
a third of them were probably within the first 42 days. So hospital and direct complication related. And then another two thirds of them are after that. So I think keeping in perspective that the suicide that happened at six months out due to mental health that was untreated or undiagnosed or opioid abuse that we were unable to, as a community, get the that the help that that patient needed or the family needed. I mean, there's such a ripple effect. And so I think it's really opened my eyes. Not so much, the direct healthcare will always be important. We always need to know how to deal with our biggest kind of um, life-threatening issues in obstetrics. But I think what it's opened my eyes to is the support systems that we need to create for women and families. Both Dr. Manning and Dr. Thompson mentioned the high rates of mistrust among patients and their practitioners, particularly for communities of color and underrepresented groups, and how that lack of trust becomes dangerous for new moms. There's also a piece about communication and trust. You know, we, we don't have enough providers that have you know, the same racial and ethnic background as the patients that they're caring for. So there may be barriers to communication or barriers to trust to be able to articulate concerns of the new mom to the provider or for the provider to hear what is being articulated in a way that allows optimal engagement. We need, you know, we need women to speak up. Um, We need to directly um, address systemic racism and discrimination that is happening in all communities. And I don't think anyone is going at it thinking that. There's tons of data on kind of racism and, and discrimination and things like that. And I don't think any provider gets into these positions and says, I am not gonna listen to this person. I think it's just very unconscious. Helping people or having systems that take that element out of the equation um, and, and empowering communities um, to speak up. If, you know, there's there's all this data on maternal early warning systems, you know, moms that are having X, Y, and Z complaints, you know, and so how do they elevate that if the first person they go to tells them it's normal? I mean, that's our, our natural um, instinct is to listen, but how can we help elevate that if, if truly it's not normal? And I think it's a lot of creating these systems and it's just kind of you know, we joke it takes a community to raise a child. I think it, it it's the same element in this in order to get us out of where we are. A report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds the number of U.S. women dying from pregnancy-related issues continues to climb. Data reported in 2021 reflects an increase of nearly 89% in the maternal mortality rate since 2018. While these rates significantly increased for all races and ethnic groups, Black women saw the biggest increase by far. Nationwide, they are 2.6 times more likely to die than white women and 2.5 times more likely to die than Hispanic women. You know, I have colleagues and I, that say we don't see race. And I don't, I, I, um, it's so hard to argue with that. I think the, the, answer is not so much I don't see race as it is like I I understand that there are differences. So we know that black women die at an increased rate than white women. Those are the statistics. And and even when you extrapolate out and account for differences in like diabetes and hypertension, they're still two to three times. I think it's stories like Serena Williams and Beyonce that have really kind of brought that to national light. These are very, um, they have every access to healthcare and they had both very life-threatening situations that have happened. And again, it may be very different in our Hispanic community. It may be different based on your socioeconomic status, may be different based on your resources. I think there, we just, it's not going to be a one size fits all, which is very hard. Um, and it's very time consuming and it's very financially um, hard um, to to kind of get a message out in 12 different ways. But I think that's the only way we're going to really address the disparities. Dr. Manning shared her personal experience 
as a women's health physician. I mean, I'll tell you one of the things that I think hit for me, and I think it's my unconscious bias, and I had to very much get myself in check with the opioid epidemic. I just, you know, you think it's this problem that these women just don't care. And how could you keep doing this when you're pregnant? Um, and I had a patient come in, um, and this was probably about a year and a half ago, to my clinic, and she was she came in for a new OB visit. Um, and she, throughout her prenatal care, I think, completely changed my perspective on that. Um, she wanted to get care so badly. And I think um, there's so many hardships. She didn't have access to reliable um, transportation. Most of the places would not take children. Um, it was difficult to make appointments just for her. Imagine then something above and beyond. She had children that had pediatric care. There was just so many things and obstacles in her way. And I I, I just grew to love her. Um, and, and I was rooting for her. But that's one person. And it, 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 unless they had a community on the other side of it, um, and she did not. It's just a very difficult thing to say. And it's not enough to just want to not do it. Um, there has to be some systems in place. There has to be providers available. There's a shortage of providers. There's a shortage of financial support. There has to be community health care workers that can help on the flip side. There's so many things and back to our kind of it takes a village takes a village to take care of these patients and families, even when they're highly motivated to not do it. And so I look at that with a very different lens. That was Dr. Nirvana Manning, chairman for the Women's Health and Obstetrics Department at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and Dr. Joe Thompson, CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Reporter Jack Travis contributed to this report. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. That's the third episode of our maternal mortality series with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, looking at the severity of the maternal health crisis. Support for KUAF comes from the Clinton School of Public Service at the University of Arkansas. The Clinton School's Master of Public Service degree balances rigorous policy and data analysis with effective communication and relationship building. Students complete unique field projects from local work in Arkansas communities and across the world. More information at clintonschool.uasys.edu or by calling the Office of Admissions, 501-683-5228. A new report shows Arkansas continues to rank toward the bottom nationally in a number of child well-being metrics. The annual Kids Count data book from the Annie E. Casey Foundation shows the state continues to rank 43rd for overall child well-being and doesn't fare much better for a number of subcategories including health, education, and economic well-being. Arkansas continues to rank dead last in the nation for its teen birth rate at about 27 births for every 1,000 females age 15 to 19. Laura Kellams, Northwest Arkansas Director of Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, says that's roughly half of what it was a decade ago. While we have made big improvements, like I mentioned, um, other states have made uh, bigger gains over this last decade. Um, and I, we would argue that one of the reasons for that is that Arkansas doesn't require comprehensive sex education. And if it is taught, uh, the only requirement is that it emphasizes abstinence, um, not that the education be comprehensive or scientifically based. Olivia Gardner, AACF's Education Policy Director, says the report shows Arkansas families are grappling with a lack of access to health care and to quality child care. Even though other states have much higher costs, Arkansas families are still struggling just as much to find child care. And that discrepancy um, highlights the need for increased um, availability and accessibility of child care in Arkansas while still trying to keep costs affordable for parents. According to the report, about 15% of Arkansas families had some experience with a family member quitting their job because of a lack of access to child care. Arkansas also ranks 45th in the nation for the number of children living in poverty at 22%. The full report is available online at aecf.org.
The University of Arkansas will move existing personnel currently in the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion into other offices in the fall. The people and resources of Division of DEI will be incorporated into Student Success, Student Affairs, Human Resources, the Office of Equal Opportunity and Compliance, and University Advancement. The shift was detailed in an email sent by Chancellor Charles Robinson yesterday. Robinson writes the move will allow the areas absorbing the personnel from Division of DEI to expand access and opportunity and develop a culture of belonging for all students and employees. He also writes that his experience serving in several positions on campus, including as Vice Chancellor for Diversity, leads him to believe better outcomes can be accomplished by reallocating resources into the other essential areas. And the city of Fayetteville is working to resolve a network outage after a cybersecurity breach last week. Keith Macedo is the director of information technology for the city and says while phone lines at City Hall were back up yesterday, online services are still shut down. So currently our online payment services are down. Our offices are open. You are to pay in person with check or cash. Uh, the mayor and our chief financial officer did uh, currently suspend any late fees or disconnects for utility customers. Uh, so those have been suspended. Uh, but you are able to come into our office physically at this time. So that is also one of our priority systems to bring online. And we'll uh, hope to have more information in the uh, next day or two. He says as of yet, no resident's personal information has been compromised. Macedo says the incident is still under investigation and the city is working with three outside IT companies to determine what caused the breach. Last Thursday morning, uh, staff identified some performance issues on a system in the city and uh, quickly identified that there may be some files that had been uh, modified on one of our servers. So we took proactive action to shut our city systems down, which included phones, all applications, internet connection. We're trying to be as cautious as we possibly can, making sure we check every system to ensure that it's uh, clean before we uh, bring it all back online. Our city staff's been working long hours, and um, uh, some of our consultants are working shifts um, to make sure that we have all the resources available uh, to address this as fast as possible. Uh, Some of the timelines are, are somewhat fluid at this time. He says the city does not have a time frame for when all services will be restored. Emergency, police, and fire services are all operating normally during the outage. This is Ozarks at Large. With me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Teresa Maurer, who is the manager, the market manager of the Fayetteville Farmers Market. Welcome back. Thank you, Kyle. All right. Before we talk about the big anniversary, uh, let's talk about how the outdoor market's been going for the past couple of months. Yeah. Well, we opened up in March. We have been lucky enough to get permits from the city because people have stuff in late March. Mm. And, um, you know, we have had some a couple of pretty good months. You know, there were some weather surprises in there, but um, I think compared even to last year, things have started off on a really good foot. The customers are coming out. I think even last year, people were still a little bit nervous, and then we had some production issues related to weather last year. But it's, it's looking pretty darn good. Tuesdays and Saturdays. Tuesdays and Saturdays, and um, we are getting a little bit of a petition drive from people that want us to bring back Thursday, and we're working on that. So I don't have anything announced about that today, but I may in a couple of weeks. Now, let's talk birthdays. 50th birthday of the farmer's market. I know, 50. It's it's just amazing. Um, 1973, it was a really good year for a lot of things. KUAF, the Ozark Folk Center. I think Blanchard Springs opened for the first time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Buffalo River, I guess, was 72. Right. But, you know, that was a great year, and and it was a a great year for the market to get a start, although it was very different then than it is now. Right. I mean, now, especially if you go on Saturday, I mean, it's— just a lot of people, a lot of vendors, a lot of dogs, a lot of music. Yeah. And and I know you weren't, um, A, you weren't old enough to be the market manager 50 <laughs> years ago, but you weren't here. Um, but you know a little bit about the history, and we're going to find out more about the history on Saturday, right? Yes, that's right. We're lucky enough to have Marcella Thompson, who's one of the uh, founding mothers, and I guess there were some fathers in there too, uh, of the market. And she's agreed to come and give a talk. 
Uh, that we'll, we'll talk about schedule later. But she'll be doing that at 11 when we have a little bit of a talk from her, a little bit of ceremonial, yay, stuff going on, some treats from the market, things like that. Um, but yes, it was a very different thing back then. It wasn't even on the square when she started it. And she's going to talk a little bit about the tussle it was to actually be able to use the square, mm. which of course now is a almost 50-year partnership with the city allowing us to be a market in a public space. So she's going to give us sort of the audio uh, right. component to the history. We're going to have a visual component as well. We are. There was a, um, a great photographer named Art Maripol oh, who yeah. was a student in 73, 74, and he just went down to the square and shot some beautiful black and white photos of what was happening on the square. So he caught the farmers, he caught the musicians, he caught a little bit of everything that was going around, on around the square. And we've been lucky enough that Art Ventures, who has kind of the uh, care of the prints and the photographs from him, gave us permission to display those. So we're hoping for good weather, but right there on the town center plaza which is going to be kind of where everything's happening we will have a tent and some uh, stands with those photographs on there maybe a book so if somebody remembers something they can write that down because we have had people come up uh, we had an exhibit a few years ago uh, when the underground was still on the corner uh, but we're kind of bringing everything back and and bringing more photographs than we had then so we're pretty excited so that's the visual part Marcella will give a, a talk so that's the oral history part, which is great. And uh, we also, over since we're doing kind of a celebratory year, uh, we've heard that the Prior Center may have some uh, footage also uh -huh. of interviews and maybe even some farmer's market shots. But we don't have that lined up yet, but maybe later on. Now, at 10 o'clock, yes. we're going to have a cooking demonstration. Yes. And this is something that we're doing in conjunction with UAMS, Ozark Natural Foods, and the Northwest Arkansas Farmer's Market Alliance. And uh, what they've done is given us um, some funding for Heather, our tribe from Ozark Natural Foods, to come and put together something wonderful from things that are on market right now. And there'll be samples. So you can come see how she makes the recipe. She'll already have samples made up. And so you can come and have a little something good to eat, hear her talk about the dish and what other things you can do with seasonal produce. So 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And the photos are there. And the photos, well, everything will be happening there in Town Center Plaza. And we have kind of a special deal for SNAP participants. If a SNAP participant attends the cooking demo, uh, they will get a $25 uh, incentive to spend at the market. Oh. So we have a, a process for getting sure. that to them. I've seen many of the Art Maripool images captured. If you told me that those were 70 years old, I don't know, maybe it's because they're black and white, but it it's hard on, to look at some of them that it was 73 and not 53. Exactly. Well, you know, the vehicles, the, the, vehicles, the clothing, yeah. you know, it was, um, you know, it literally was, as Marcella will tell us, people coming, you know, from the farm and setting up and whatever they were wearing that day, that's what they, yeah, it, it does have that feel. The, one of my favorite photographs is of a older vendor with a young woman with long blonde hair and, and you know, yes. he's handing her something. And it just kind of brings together uh, that spirit of the market where there's all kinds of things going on. And she was obviously happy to get whatever he was giving her. And, of course, 1973, Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas were far different and far, far fewer people. That's right. That's we're right. Much more rural. Yeah. Uh, and really, that's, again, part of the story that Marcella will tell is that this was actually kind of an economic development mm. project for farmers to be able to have one more place where they could bring their bring their market um, uh, wares to sell. So that was kind of one of the things that had to be used to sway the city to give permission. And she'll talk about all that. So that's celebrating on Saturday, the Big 50. As you mentioned, it's an anniversary year. Yes. Tuesday, there's something, too. Right. We're bringing back Kids Day. 
we brought it back carefully in 2022, and we kind of got overwhelmed. <laughs> but what that told us is that after a couple-year absence due to COVID, that people were still interested in that. So Kids Day will be our normal Tuesday market, you know, opening at 7 and all of that. But then from 9 to 11, we're going to have kids' activities, some of the local nonprofit groups. There'll be a bee, an observational beehive. There'll be something called soil detectives. There'll be, you know, different activities. Uh, Joanne Kaminsky is going to bring some puppets. And all those things will be kind of going on interspersed within the market. Um, the other thing that's kind of fun is we've gotten some funding to do a limited number of uh, envelopes of kids' bucks. Ah. So kids that come to with their parents to the manager booth will get an envelope with some $1 kids' bucks in them that they need to spend that day. Gotcha. And we're asking all the vendors to bring some kid-sized things like a couple of flowers or a cup of berries or something like that. So, yeah, yeah that'll so be that'll Tuesday. be fun. That's Tuesday from 9 to 11. So it's a, it's a portion of the market. But that's that's about the time that we thought most people would be able to bring their children if they were going to come. Is there any chance there's a list of the original year's vendors? Did they keep paperwork? Oh, yes. Um, boy, I couldn't put my hands on that right now. But I have gone back through the vendor files into the 80s, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's something from the 70s. Um, I will check okay. on that, and maybe we could, you know, talk about yeah. that in a future show. We don't have very, we had, like, our longest, um, one of the things the market does is recognize the longest-term member. Right now, that's Dripping Springs. I can believe yeah. that, yeah. Before that, it was uh, Vivian London who made the needlework baskets, and unfortunately, she's passed on. But anyway, we... Um, for a while, we're trying to recognize, you know, those senior members. And, and I'm sure people who are regular attendees of the market have their, you know, you know where Dripping Springs is. I know where Cheryl Buell right. is going to be. Right. And I know, I know where my favorite tomatoes are right. and things like that. Right. Yeah. People do that. And people, um, so they kind of, and I hear about it. If somebody's not at market, they're either worried, uh, get a customer mm -hmm. that's worried about them or, you know, just. Uh, not quite sure of where they are in the square <laughs> and that sort of thing. We do have kind of a framework where everybody's in the same place, and then we have floaters that help fill in when we have seasonal products like blueberries and we bring in somebody else. All right, finally, kind of a weird question. That's I okay. mean, excluding uh, locally produced music or art, but let's just go agriculturally. Okay. Is there anything that's common at the market now that might not have been 50 years ago? Or is agriculture agriculture? Um, I think there's a lot more diversity in the horticultural products. I think when the market started, it was probably beans, tomatoes, squash, you know, okra maybe. Although okra, I don't know, uh, okay. you know, what would have been popular then. I should look at some of those pictures. I know there were apples. Mm -hmm. and Ooh. Now, see, that's... Yeah. You, and that goes back historically. Right, right. Um, but... The uh, alien vegetable, kohlrabi, is something that <laughs> you probably didn't even see that till a few years ago. Right. Uh, a lot more diversity in types of tomatoes. So it's not just your commercial, you know, store-type tomato, which, you know, anyway, is better homegrown anyway. Right. But there's a, a lot of – there's a rainbow Heirloom now. And, yeah, yeah, a rainbow of peppers. Maybe you would have only found green peppers, and right. now there's a rainbow of those. Um, yeah, I think there's, um, I think those are some of the things that would maybe come to mind. But I'd say on the horticultural side. And then, of course, early in the 2000s, um, the city council had to grant the farmer's market the, uh, the okay to sell processed things like meats right. and cheese and things like that. And um, there was a little bit of a tussle that went on about that. But the best thing are products like that you can have farther into the season. So right. that's been really good. Yeah. All right. Celebration is on Saturday. That includes the cooking demo at 10. The, the oral history at 11, then Tuesday Kids Day from 9 to 11. Right. And we do have some special treats. I just want to keep mentioning the treats. <laughs> you have to come and find out what they are, but they do have a 50th anniversary theme. All right. Teresa Mauer, right. market manager, thank you. Thank you, Kyle. The Momentary in Benville presents Grammy Award-winning alternative country rock band Wilco, Friday, October 27th, live and in-person, outdoors, on the Momentary Green. This concert is part of the Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Wilco tickets are on sale now at themomentary.org. This is Ozarks at Large. 
Wendy Echevarria continues her series about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas this week by focusing on why it's vital to view moms as leaders by showcasing two impactful mothers, Maria Hernandez and Beverly Grau. Here is an excerpt from the fourth podcast episode of Inspirando El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas. So a lot of people ask, like, what your accent or, you know, like, you grew up there your whole life. And, uh, but I had a, she was an English teacher, so I had an English teacher in the family. Beverly says her grandmother was from Ohio, but moved to Guatemala when she was in her 20s to work for a program with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to teach English. She then met her husband, had Beverly's dad, and never looked back. Guatemala became her new home. Beverly was born in Guatemala City in 1985, but her family would travel to the U.S. for vacation during the summers. And so I remember traveling here and thinking how little Guatemala was geographically and how, like, I happened to be born there and, and growing up there and how small it was compared to the rest of the world. But it felt, um, I mean, so normal. Beverly attended the American School of Guatemala, which she says was considered one of the best schools in the country. Her grandmother taught English there, and when her father was young, he also attended the institute, so they had her follow in his footsteps. It was a bilingual school, and um, so I had, I think, a really good educational preparation. I feel um, really privileged for that. I recognize, and it took me, I think, leaving Guatemala to recognize the privilege of having been raised with such a good private education um, that I really think I took for granted. It was kind of the norm and the kind of like circle that I grew up in. However, Beverly says at times she felt like she was in between two separate worlds, the very rich and the poor. She says the kids at her school had bodyguards, the newest cars, and much more. But when she traveled home, she often witnessed a different story. Having grown up in a place where every stoplight there was, you know, a six-year-old child carrying a, you know, six-month-old baby on their back, begging for money, and um, it's just, yeah, it, it's a different perspective, and um, yeah. Beverly was not considered poor, but she says her parents were not wealthy either. They were considered middle class. But in order for Beverly to receive the best education, her parents worked extremely hard. Nothing was handed to them. Seeing people suffer from severe poverty gave Beverly a different perspective on the world. Obviously, Guatemala has um, a really big um, wealth gap. So there's like a, you know, the very rich and there's the very, very poor. Um, and I think that that's, that, is very different than what people see, especially growing up in like Midwest or South, but you you're not around big cities, um, really seeing what real poverty is. Thirty-four years ago, my mom, Maria Hernandez, ran away from poverty and was on a mission to give her newborn better opportunities by moving to the US. Like Guatemala, El Salvador, my mom's country, had and still has a wealth gap. La pobreza eh, que yo pues pude ver en mi país cuando yo estaba muy pequeña eh, fue de que... The poverty that I witnessed in my country when I was young was that, unfortunately, many people did not have food to eat. We were thankful we had beans and rice to eat, but there were some people who didn't have enough to even buy beans or rice. Many kids, for example, did not have clothes, and they didn't have shoes, and it was not because they didn't want to wear them, they just didn't have any. My mom was born in El Salvador in 1973. My grandma was a single mother with three children. With no support, my grandma worked vigorously to make sure my mom and my two uncles had food every single day. At the time, my mom says she didn't fully recognize the situation her family was going through. 
mientras uno está pequeño, a lo mejor no se da cuenta, pero va creciendo y sí se da cuenta de que... When you're young, you don't understand, right? But as you get older, you start to realize that you lack many things, like food, shoes, clothes, and toys, which is something you desire when you are young, a toy. My mom says most of the kids in her neighborhood played with sticks and rocks. And ever since she was young, she dreamed of being a school teacher. She wanted to go to school and receive an education, but it became hard for my grandma to afford the school uniform, books, and other school supplies. Porque yo decía, ¿por qué, por qué tanto cuesta comprar útiles? I used to question why it was so hard for us to buy my school supplies or a pair of shoes or clothes for school. And I realized that's what it was. We didn't have enough money for it. My mom says it was difficult for her to see other kids at school with nice shoes and multiple notebooks, while she only had one. At the age of 14, she stopped going to school. It became too challenging for them to purchase all of the supplies. A year later, her life completely changed. At 15 years of age, I was pregnant. She was scared because she didn't want her daughter to face what she had gone through as a child and as a teen. She wanted more for my sister, Jessica, and was determined to give her a better life. In 1989, my mom made the toughest decision of her life. Come to the U.S. to work, make money for her daughter, but with the caveat of leaving her eight-month-year-old behind with my dad's parents. Con el dolor en el corazón y en el alma dije, pues, si me sale la oportunidad, pues me voy, no la quiero dejar, pero no quiero que... With all the pain in my heart and soul, I thought if I get the opportunity to go, and I didn't want to leave her, but I didn't want to face a situation where she could get sick and not have enough to pay for a doctor's visit. You never know what will happen in the future, which is the reason when the opportunity presented itself, I preferred to leave just for a little while to give my daughter a better future. Unfortunately, my mom says the years went by too quickly. And because of the fear that my sister could face any danger when traveling to the U.S., they waited. But she never stopped hoping and praying that they would see each other again one day. It took 12 long, agonizing years for my sister and mom to reunite in Los Angeles. Valió la pena, pero no fue fácil. El proceso fue bien difícil porque no... It was worth it, but it was not easy. The process was very difficult. Not being with her, not seeing her grow up, not hearing her call me mom for the first time, and having to work and work to make sure she had everything. It was important to me. It was like she had all the essential things, but I was not with her. I was not present. I was not able to take her to school, but she was well taken care of. Pero a ella no me le falta nada. Today, my sister is a U.S. citizen, a mother of two, a wife, a former elementary teacher, and a graduate student. She's pursuing a master's degree in counseling, something my mom always dreamed of and wanted for her. My mom's example, dedication, and leadership are some of the reasons I'm also here today, determined to get my master's degree in journalism. She's the leader I would like to be, empathetic, hardworking, smart, and a visionary. Like my mom, Beverly Grau wanted the best for her family, which is why she decided to step back from her position as the Director of Enrollment at the Northwest Arkansas Community College in September of 2021 to raise her boys. Beverly grew up in Guatemala and moved to the United States in 2005 to attend Missouri Southern State University in Joplin. have a lot of international students there and um, it was a lot more affordable it was small town I remember thinking like well you know Guatemala is small and so I need to go somewhere small I can't go somewhere big um, I had one of my closest friends went to the University of Chicago and I remember visiting her and being totally overwhelmed like huge campus huge university like her dorm was co-ed and it was it was like I can't I won't survive in this so I went to a small school Beverly says moving to the U.S. was a bit of a culture shock, and even though she wanted to move to Joplin because it was a smaller town, it was different than what she expected. It was the first week that I was here, and someone had taken me to Walmart, 
at night it was dark and it was like in a van and you know it was lots of passengers i didn't really see i just remember that they drove me on this big road and we got to walmart and a few days later like i wanted to go to walmart on my own i didn't have a car and there was no public transportation in joplin but i didn't feel like it was that far and it was august so you know it's really hot um even though you think like, oh, surely Guatemala is hot. Rather than it. And it gets hot <laughs> in the summer, but it's actually a kind of like mild weather year round. And so it was probably close to 100 degrees that day. And I decided to walk from the university to Walmart and it ended up being like a really far distance. And I remember walking and walking and never getting there and cars like pulling over because they were like, are you okay? Because people don't walk there. And I was like, why are people, I'm just walking. <laughs> like, why is it so weird? And you can hear this entire episode of Inspirando El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas at KUAF.com. Just look for local podcast under the Listen tab. A listener in Farmington recently shared, I'm a new resident of Northwest Arkansas and new to KUAF, but not in PR. Listening to KUAF has been great for helping me become better acquainted with the area. As KUAF approaches the end of our financial year on June 30th, we're marking 50 years on the air by raising $50,000 to keep this essential public service available to newcomers as well as those who are coming back home. Make your gift of support at supportkuaf.com. The concerts in the Lower Ramble along the Razorback Greenway in Fayetteville continue this Friday evening. The weekend starts performances are free and begin, weather permitting, each Friday evening at 5. This week, the band Coloring 12 will bring jazz standards to the trail. Last week, two members of the band, Loren Clare, vocals, and Jake Herzog, guitar, were guests in our Furman Garner performance studio. I asked Loren about the name of the band, Coloring 12. It's about the 12 tones that exist in the scale and sort of coloring those in order to create atmosphere and texture um, and ambiance for the mood at hand. It's really based around jazz, um, but uh, there is a lot of flexibility in terms of what is our mood for that day or how are we kind of feeling this song in the in the moment um, to kind of explore and all of us sort of play different genres and so um, it's really bringing in to scope the fullness of what inspires each of us um, while still staying true to jazz and its nature. I think I from what I know about you, from what I've heard of you and heard Garrett play, each of you plays a wide variety or performs a wide variety of music, let yeah. alone the combination. Yeah, indeed. I think that, that speaks to how, how large the contemporary jazz and improvisation uh, umbrella is um, in 2023. It said a lot of the practitioners that are playing this music now didn't grow up on a narrow diet of of post-bop music. It was, so we all kind of grew up on alternative rock and hip-hop and country and jazz and bluegrass and heavy metal and so on. And so I think uh, a lot of the contemporary musicians, and one thing I like about this ensemble is we get to blend all of those influences. All right, so is it ever at all a challenge to decide what you will put on your playlist? Sometimes. I think, though where we're playing and sort of the time of day, the atmosphere sort of helps narrow it down. Um, but yeah, sometimes it does become a tricky decision of, okay, what should we, what should we play this time? Because the volume, of course, of jazz standards is enormous. I mentioned this with other artists who are performing as this, and, and you brought up being outside and people just passing by. And that's sort of a different thing too, as opposed to maybe a club where someone's sitting down and they know that they're going to hear you or your band perform, you're going to get roller skaters and skateboarders and joggers. Sure. And I, I think that's really sort of the idea that the city of Fayetteville and the University of Arkansas's Department of Music, um, particularly Alan Gossman, had in mind um, when putting this uh, sort of event together and this series together. Um, was for it to be sort of like a, a start to the weekend, weekend starts, um, where we're really kind of, you know, just helping people get into their weekend in a bright mood and um, kicking things off in a, in a great way. There's something neat about 
you know, we often think about adorning a space with art, and then we think about adorning an outside space with art. Uh, but I think it's less common to think about adorning a space with music and what that what that looks like. And so I love that that's been a part of all these conversations about the ramble from the beginning, and just happy to continue participating in that. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is true if you're talking about jazz, but I think musicians specifically in Coloring Twelve, a lot of collaboration in your past, a spirit of collaboration. And I'm wondering what you can get as a person or an artist out of collaborating with someone. For me, when I collaborate with other musicians, it opens my mind up to a lot of things that I wouldn't ordinarily think of myself, which then allows me to open up vocally or um, I I play keys, not with this group, but I play keys um, in other projects that I've done. Um, But it gives me room for imagination in um, exploring tones and textures that I wouldn't ordinarily hear myself, but for example, Jake will play something or have a particular rhythm in a song that I didn't ever think of doing, and then it changes the way that I sing the song. Um, and that, for me, is really, really fun. Yeah, I think with any with any great band leader like Loren, the idea of just the music can kind of play itself. Like, she can go wherever she wants to go, and we'll follow, and sometimes those, those roles or, orbit around. And I think this is a really fun ensemble because of how free it all feels like we can sit down with any with any song and end up with it probably an interpretation we wouldn't have guessed guessed at but because there's a lot of shared uh, shared language and shared knowledge about jazz and other styles it's it's really a liberating experience to play in this setting i've always been envious of that shared language of musicians because whether it be through experience or study or a combination i love watching ensembles and someone looks at somebody else and a message has been exchanged and I don't know whether it's about tempo rhythm who's taking this solo when we're ending but I love that feeling that just through the vibe and the acknowledgement you know what's happening mm-hmm. I am um, I watched a a psychological study yesterday actually by Dr. Jeff Mims and he was talking about in the pocket for um all sorts of musicians that he researched from jazz to opera to I think he had um, a soul funk artist and all sorts of different artists and different instruments as well Um, and really talking about psychologically how the pocket functions and it was so interesting and he even played some clips of musicians functioning in the pocket and um, it is a phenomenon that you can't really explain or necessarily teach in a way you find it or at least you hope you find it, and um, it just sort of, it exists, and you hope that each show that you do, you can access it with the musicians that you're playing with. I feel like people chase this feeling, that's why we play music in the, in the <laughs> first place, and and it because it enables some level of connection with with other people that you can't get in any other way, and even if you spend the whole show chasing it and it happens for like 10 seconds, it's still like the magical uh, experience and one that can be so profound that I, I tend to think that this is why people get up every day and play music together is <laughs> because it, it gives us it gives us that. And, you know, we we often talk about music in the context of it being a, a, a profession or a career or some form of entertainment. But but, um, you know, the, that seeking that experience is, is much deeper and and you know people from from every culture on every place in the planet play music for that for that connection what have you decided to to perform here in the Fermagarner performance studio well in honor of it almost being officially summertime we're gonna play summertime i endorse that <laughs> all right let's get you set up Summertime And the living is easy Fish are jumping And the cotton, it is high. 
Ren Clare vocals and Jake Herzog guitar in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. They'll be joined by Benji Wilson on upright bass, pianist Claudia Burson, and member of the Arkansas Drummers Hall of Fame Steve Wilkes as Coloring 12 at the Lower Ramble along the Razorback Greenway in Fayetteville Friday evening at 5 as part of the next Weekend Starts event. The performance is outside and it's free. Do you have an old car sitting around, and are you looking for a hassle-free way to get rid of it while making a tax-deductible charitable contribution? Donate it to KUAF. We work with CARS, Charitable Adult Rides and Services, to provide you with this unique way to support our programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE. That's 855-500-7433. Or visit careasy.org and schedule a pickup. This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Harmony. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Harmony in Johnson County, I believe? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. We should all seek harmony, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Wendy Echeverria. We also had material provided by Daniel Breen from KUAR Radio in Little Rock and additional assistance today from Jack Travis. We have another show tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Kyle Kellams. Why don't we go to all of these towns over the course of the summer? I'd love to. All right. We'll be back tomorrow.